through something that makes you go, what? Do, do, do I even know you? You know, it's like my wife started liking sauerkraut and stuff like that. Like after years of not liking it and then she's eating vinegar and all this. And I'm like, who are you? What is wrong with you? Whereas before she didn't like those things, or maybe she did and didn't tell me. Maybe she was living a secret life of vinegar and slaw all over the place that I didn't know about. I don't think that's true, but anywho. Anybody ever see the movie Megamind? Love it. Love it. Okay? So, so like, just to set the stage for you guys that haven't seen it, it's animated, but that's still, it's a great redemption story, by the way. So it's, it's about a guy who's a bad guy, and he's been a bad guy his whole life. And he has this um, henchman, whom, whom he calls Minion, which is a fish in a tank on top of like an um, automaton body kind of thing. I, I can't paint that picture for you, sorry. You're just going to have to take my word for it. But they, they have this interchange uh, at one point where Megamind is starting to kind of feel different, to change. And he's trying to leave, and he grabs the keys, and Minion grabs the keys back from him, and they start having this thing. And this, this is what it says. He says, no, this has gone far enough. And then he says, oh, that was really grown up. And then Minion says, sir, sir, please, it's for your own good. Megamind says, oh, what do you know? And then Minion says, I may not know much, but I do know this. The bad guy doesn't get the girl. To which Megamind replies, Maybe I don't want to be the bad guy anymore. And Minion goes, ah! And Megamind says, you heard me. And Minion says, who are you? Watch that movie if you haven't seen it. It's super. He doesn't know him anymore. This bad guy who's always been bad and who's relished this bad guy role all of a sudden says, maybe I don't want to be the bad guy anymore. It's like, who are you? In today's message, we're going to see some folks who think that they know somebody, but they really don't. And the problem in their case is the body that they think they know is God. But they don't know him. And Jesus is going to make that very clear to them as we come into our passage today. Which is Matthew chapter 22, verses 23 to 33. If you would please stand as we read the scriptures. The very words of God, and that's going to be important in our message today. The importance of the scriptures as the word of God. Matthew 22, 23 through 33. The same day, Sadducees came to him, who say that there's no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living." And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Let's pray. Father, your word is powerful. Your spirit is powerful. Your church is powerful. And we pray that as the three of these powerful parts of you meet together this morning, God, your word, your spirit, your church, that we would see clearly who you are, what your will is, and that we would be empowered to go out and do that will for your glory and for our good. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So don't forget, which I know we've been here a while, but we're in the last week of Jesus' life. Um, Probably, if I'm right and I'm recollecting everything right, we're in Wednesday. So we're in the day before the day before his crucifixion. 
And all this is going on in the temple. Jesus is teaching in the temple. He's standing in the temple. He has come in and out of town this holy week. He rode in the first day on the back of the donkey and Hosanna, Hosanna. And then he walked to the temple and he left and he came back the next day and he went in and uh, was teaching in the temple. He throws out the money changers, all that's going on. He comes back in the next day. They see a fig tree that he had cursed the previous day. And he's standing in the temple. And the Pharisees have come. The Herodians have come. And all these people have come. And they're challenging the authority of Jesus. They're trying to trap him in his words, which that's never worked, has it? Uh, nobody's really ha- ever had any luck with that. And today we see another party, another group that comes to talk to Jesus, and we'll start there in verse 23. The same day, Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question. Okay, we really haven't heard much from these Sadducees. Their name is frequently paired or linked to the Pharisees. We say the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and it's kind of like we, we think of them as like, uh, bosom buddies, next of kin kind of thing, but really they were kind of warring parties, okay? Kind of, you know, anybody know what, you know, like red state, blue state, Democrat, Republican, you know. In our day and time, uh, do you see the, the friction between the D's and the R's? Get that in your mind because that's what's going on with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. These guys really don't like each other, okay? Uh, they're kind of warring parties, Um But again, in a religious realm that spills over into a political realm, not just a political realm. So the Pharisees would have been seen, and this may sound backwards and upside down, but stay with me. The Pharisees would have been seen as more liberal in their interpretation of the law. We've seen that before in Matthew when when we said that they felt it was their duty to protect the law, they would say, by building a fence of sorts around the law and its interpretation. And they made all kinds of loopholes and exceptions and had all kinds of different interpretations, all kinds of differing thought patterns regarding God's law the Pharisees did. But not the Sadducees. They were absolute literalists. They interpreted their scripture in a very narrow, very particular leaning, looking for the original thought and the literal interpretation, which sounds pretty doggone good, right? I mean, that's, yeah, I'm an originalist. Fill that seat now, BTW. And they were so focused, these Sadducees were so focused on the original intent of the law that they didn't even give much credence to any of the Old Testament writing outside of the first five books. The Torah, the Pentateuch, the books of Moses. So the Sadducees majored in Genesis to Deuteronomy. And they based their teachings and their actions on those five books specifically. And as such, they were big into the temple. Because if you look at Genesis through Deuteronomy, which includes Leviticus in there, there's a lot of instruction on how to handle temple worship, how to handle sacrifice. So the Sadducees would have been the ones who were the major benefactors of all that went on in the temple. And as such, they were very wealthy because the temple was a money-making machine. People changing money. We saw before sometimes 25-50% markup on the money changing. They're selling animals in the temple because people, you know, they can't travel all that way with an animal. So it was, it, it was a cash cow. The temple was a cash cow. And the Sadducees were the ones who really received the bulk of that money. And as such, the bulk of the power and the influence that came from running the temple. So... When Jesus came in and ran out the money changers and the sellers of animals, it was mostly the Sadducees' pockets that he was emptying. And you can see as well from today's text that they, the Sadducees, say there is no resurrection, which is why they're sad, you see. Like you've got to say that at least once in the message. You don't have any choice. It's not original to me, by the way. Don't give me credit for that one. Just blame me for using it, so... The Sadducees say there is no resurrection. And that may be confusing to us, especially after Jesus' resurrection and how on this side of it, it is such a major component of our Christian thought. But if you read Genesis to Deuteronomy, there's not mention of resurrection. Okay? Um, 
So if their focus is there, where do you see resurrection? Well, you don't, you don't see it much, if at all. John MacArthur shares this about how the Pharisees would try to prove from the Pentateuch, from the first five books of the Bible, that there was a resurrection to the Sadducees. Now, this is what they... This is funny. Quote, So they mocked the Pharisees at that, and they constantly must have confronted the Pharisees about, Will you give us an answer from Moses? Where in the Pentateuch does it say there's resurrection? Now, the Pharisees made a noble effort at it, folks. And I'm reading a direct quote from MacArthur. But they had a real tough time coming up with a verse. As far as we can tell, they cited two verses in the whole Pentateuch. And these are the two that they cited to answer the Sadducees' claim that Moses never talks about resurrection. The first one was Numbers 18.28. So you shall also present a contribution to the Lord from all your tithes, which you receive from the people of Israel. And from it you shall give the Lord's contribution to Aaron the priest. So their argument there is that it's saying you're giving a contribution to Aaron. And if you're giving a contribution to Aaron... He's got to be alive. Eh, weak sauce, but okay, whatever, okay? Therefore, Aaron is still alive, okay? Uh, because the verb is in present tense, MacArthur says, therefore, Aaron is still alive. Not a very strong argument, MacArthur says. And the other verse they used, and this, one's, this is good, is Deuteronomy 31.16. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Now, don't change the slide on me, okay? Then this people will rise, 31.16 says. And then the next part says, And whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering. So the Pharisees would use that first part, says this people will rise to try to convince the Sadducees that there was a resurrection. So yeah, they're going to rise and they're going to whore after foreign gods. So again, they're taking bits and pieces. They're taking things out of context to try to prove to the Sadducees that there is a resurrection. So MacArthur says, so that verse really doesn't do it either, right? And that's all they could come up with. That's all the Pharisees could come up with to try to convince the Sadducees from the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, that resurrection is real. So now look, if you're a Sadducee, and you're focused on these first five books of the Bible, and people start talking about resurrection, you're like, I don't see it. So, there's that. So, the Sadducees saw nowhere in the first five books of the Bible any reference to resurrection, so they didn't believe in it. Now, one last thing that made the Sadducees distinct is that they were 100% on board with Roman rule. They were pro-Roman. They benefited from the Pax Romana, which is the peace of Rome, the peace that Rome brought through military might. If you were in the Roman Empire, you were protected. You were safe not from the barbarians, from the savage people who lived outside of, of the empire. And, and the Sadducees were all about that because Rome had set them up there in Jerusalem. Herod had built them this magnificent temple. And they had their temple worship, which made them wealthy and powerful. And as a general rule, it was the Sadducees who had the most power on the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling council of the Jews. And their power, teamed with Rome's power, was a lot of power. So if Rome was so good and so good to and for them, they would wholeheartedly support Rome. They didn't want any feathers ruffled with the Romans because Rome was the foundation under their cash cow, which is the temple. And if any noise was made, if any hints or rumors of revolt popped up, the Sadducees would do whatever they could to make sure to side with Rome, helping Rome snuff out any kind of insubordination. And this put them in direct opposition to the Pharisees because the Pharisees saw Rome as an enemy, as a threat to their pure religion. Okay, so that you get a bigger picture here of the conflict between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. So back in our verse today, it's these Sadducees, these temple power brokers who come to Jesus here on this Wednesday, the last week of his life, and their non-resurrection believing selves ask Jesus a question. Now before we look at the question, let me ask you something. Do you think they're just coming to inquire of Jesus out of honest curiosity or truth-seeking purity? No. No way they are. They hate Jesus. They hate Jesus with a passion for a few reasons. One, he had just ran out their money changers and animal sellers early in the week. 
So he had hit them in their bank accounts. And Jesus had ridden into Jerusalem to the cries of what? Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the son of David. That's Messiah talk. That's revolt talk. That's rebellion talk. It's a political statement that would threaten the Sadducees' peace and their cozy relationship to Rome. So no, they weren't just fawning over Jesus in admiration. They're looking to trap him in his word just like the Pharisees had, just like the Herodians had too. And that shows in their question which is unnecessarily complicated and pretty stupid too. Verses 24 through 28. Their question saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring. I got switched up again, John. It's not letting me switch. Uh, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, here's their question. Therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. Well, if that's what you think is going to work, fellas, whatever. But let's explore this a bit. First, they called Jesus teacher, which we've said many prior times is true, but woefully inadequate for who Jesus is. And it tips their hand that they're approaching him on a doctrinal or teaching level. And therefore, they're hoping to cause division by making Jesus pick a side in a debate. Or they may have just been seeking to mock him for his belief in a resurrection that they don't believe in, that has, in, their, in their minds has no scriptural evidence. And note that they are rooting their question and hence their argument on scripture. They lead with teacher Moses said. If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, let's dig in here a second. They are referencing Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 10. And I don't know about your Bibles, if you've got labels on the top of paragraphs and stuff. My Bible that I study from labels this section, Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10, laws concerning leveret marriage. Leverate, L-E-V-I-R-A-T-E, laws concerning leveret marriage. Anybody else's Bible say that? Okay. Now, let me read the passage, then we'll talk about this leveret thing. Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10. If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, Then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And he shall answer and say, So shall it be to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. Now that may seem really, really, really strange to us. And it is strange. Nope, I don't want to marry you. My sister-in-law. My brother's wife. No thanks, no thanks, no thanks. Give me your sandal. I mean, that's weird, right? That's weird. But this is a big deal, okay? Because God was all about Israelite lines being preserved. You can think about the law of Jubilee when everybody's land would revert back to their family's household every 50 years. They would go back and say, this, this needs to stay with the family. The family, the clan, the family name was super important within the tribes of Israel. So what's going on here, and again, it may, it may not seem very important to our text today, but seeing this context is helpful. The word leveret, which I mentioned, L-E-V-I-R-A-T-E, uh, which is in the heading, it's not in the actual scripture itself, uh, comes from the Latin word Levir, L-E-V-I-R, which means husband's brother. 
So this is a provision in the law of Moses for a man who dies without an heir to have his line perpetuated through his brother who would take the widow of his deceased brother, have a child with her, and that child would technically be considered the child of the dead man. This was to ensure, as the text says, that the deceased man's name was not blotted out of Israel. And it was such a big deal that if the living brother was not willing to do this, he would be called out in public before the elders, before everybody, with the widow taking his sandal off and spitting in his face. And then in verses 9 and 10 in Deuteronomy 25 that show the public shame incurred for this. So for the rest of his life, he's known as the one who would not perpetuate his brother's life. And you know, we don't think about this much, but we were talking about it last night at home. I said, just imagine if John was married and God forbid, he died. And we told his wife, hold up, Asa. And Asa's like, come on, dad. I mean, come on. I'm like, listen, I don't want to have to take your sandal off and spit in your face, man. Marry the woman, have a kid. And when you have that kid, that kid's going to be John's kid. It's not going to be your kid, the first one. Now, put it, if you put it in our context today, it's crazy, okay? And actually, you can see this. There's a couple of places in the Scripture where you see it. Ur and Onan and fellas spilled a seed on the ground and God struck him dead because he didn't want to raise up an heir for his brother. And then you see it in the story of Ruth. This plays out in the story of Ruth, too. So anyway, this is a pretty big deal. And the Sadducees, majoring in the Torah bring this law up, but in an effort to discredit the belief in resurrection from the dead, they're like, this is ridiculous. Who could ever think there would be a resurrection if something like this happened? Because it's going to be a mess in the afterlife that you guys claim happens. And the reasoning is, since God made this perpetuating someone's line so important, it shows that to believe in resurrection is foolish since something like this can happen and the post-resurrection scene would be horrendous. I mean, if a woman was married to seven different brothers... In her life, so not seven brides for seven brothers, one bride for seven brothers, right? If a woman was married to seven different brothers in her life in an effort to raise up offspring in line with the Leverett commandment, what a mess this would, rise, would, would, would raise up in the afterlife for these seven guys and this one woman. An awkward scene in heaven with seven men and one woman going, all right, guys, whose is she? Okay, that's, that's their reasoning. And so the Sadducees are saying, man, this would surely be a mess that God didn't intend, right? So whose wife would she be in the heavenly by and by? Because, I mean, they say they all had her, which I don't know if they meant it or not, but that sounds really ugly and awful, right? They all had her. So Jesus, smart guy, big teacher, how are you going to handle this terrible conundrum we've just presented to you? We've really got you here. Go ahead and embarrass yourself as you fail to teach your way out of this wet paper bag. And what does the next verse begin with? Verse 29. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. (laughs) Of course, we start with the word but. They think they have him trapped. They think they're going to watch him fall decisively into their trap. But Jesus answered them. And boy, does he. And the first words of his answer, you are wrong. (laughs) That's not hard to interpret, right? You don't need a, a, a Greek word study Bible to figure that one out, right? He doesn't say that they're missing an important element or have just left a detail or two out. No, he just says they're wrong. You are wrong. That's pretty clear. But he doesn't stop at saying they're wrong. No, he tells them why they're wrong. You're wrong, he says, because you know neither the Scriptures or the power of God. Uh Uh-oh. Now things are heating up. That's a bomb he just dropped on them. You religious power brokers, the rulers, the ones deciding the religious proceedings of the day, know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Whew, man, I tell you what, this has stepped all over my toes all week long. You don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. That's like going to the dentist and say, you don't know anything about teeth or gums. It's malpractice for the priests of God to not know the word of God or the power of God. 
you, the spiritual leaders of this time and place, don't know the very word you're supposed to be teaching, and you don't have a clue about the power of God, which you're supposed to be putting on full display through your life. This is a full-on oof moment for them. It's a direct kick in the teeth. They were wrong first because Jesus says they don't know the Scriptures. Now we said earlier that the Sadducees didn't deal much outside the Torah, which is an indictment on them, since the rest of the Old Testament is divine revelation as well. So basically they said, we'll take five of your 39 books, God, but those other 34, not worried about them, not concerned about them. But I think that Jesus would say that they don't even really know those five books. They, they say that they accept. The word know there means to give full attention and recognition to. And the word for scriptures is graphe, G-R-A-P-H-E. And it refers to that which is written. They haven't given their full attention nor their recognition to what has been written. They would say that they've dissected and inspected every quill stroke of those first five books of our Bible. But if they had, they would know and show a different God than the one that they had constructed. They don't know what they say they know, which is the writings of God. But not just His writings, they also do not know the power of God. The Greek word there is dunamis. Where we get our word dynamite from, it means inherent power, power residing in a thing, or in this case, in a person, God. They don't know the true inherent power that resides in God. If they did, they wouldn't kowtow to the Romans to keep their beloved temple system going, but would instead entrust themselves to God to protect and provide for them. They trusted invisible, self-beneficial power like that scene in Caesar and armies and Herod and weapons and engines of war. And what we say last week, some trust in chariots, some in horses. That's exactly what they did. But all of those things are literally nothing compared to the power that resides in the person of God. A power that Jesus says they know nothing about. And since they don't, and since they don't know the scriptures of this omnipotent God, they are Wrong. And now he goes on to show how they don't know these scriptures or this power by not believing in the resurrection. First in verse 30. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like angels in heaven. So quickly Jesus acknowledges the reality of the resurrection when he says for in the resurrection. You are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection... He shows that their lack of knowledge of the Scriptures and their not knowing the power of God both reflect their ignorance about the resurrection. So the Scriptures testify to the power of God and the power of God makes possible the resurrection. For in the resurrection, and then this, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like angels in heaven. Hmm. Now wait a minute, what's that mean? Well, it seems that Jesus is debunking their seven brother scenario by making the question of whose wife the lady will be moot. Because when people are resurrected, Jesus says, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. Now, some of you may be going, what? But that's, that's what it says. And it seems to be pretty clear what it means. When we are resurrected, we will not be married... And we will not be given in marriage. So you folks who have said, till death do us part, you meant that. Because at your death, your marriage ends. Okay? You're like, no, I'm going to love you forever. No, you're not, liar. (laughs) You're going to love them till you die. And that's great, that's beautiful, that's wonderful. But in the afterlife, you're not going to be married. My wife is not going to be my wife in heaven. And some of you say, well, I don't want to go. Don't, don't, don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. That, that. that sounds great for poetry, but it's, it doesn't work well for eternity, okay? Jesus is saying they don't marry nor are they given marriage in the afterlife. Nobody will be married in the afterlife. Now, we don't see this anywhere else in the Bible that I know of, but Jesus is awfully clear here so that we don't really have any confusion as to whether it's true or not. 
But now we do know, if you, well, we're not going to go there this morning. You might look at it. Ephesians 5. Paul says that marriage is in place to show the relationship of who? Christ and the church. Okay? So in the next life, that relationship between Christ and the church won't have to be shown by anything or anyone else because it will be seen in full view. So there will be no need for a picture when it's fulfilled. You see what I'm saying there? Marriage is in place right now to prepare us and to show the world for what the relationship between Christ and the church is. Well, when all things are made right and we're in the presence of Jesus, we'll see that relationship. Marriage is just an indicator of the relationship between Christ and the church. Which, that's really good news. Because God doesn't give us a picture of something and then give us something worse later. If we're, if we're in the picture and it's good, and it is, marriage is the best and hardest thing you'll ever do in your life. And if you never get married, that's a gift too. But if there's something better than marriage, and it's going to be shown in our relationship to Jesus in eternity, I want that. If it's better in marriage, I want it. And that's what Jesus is saying. There'll be no need for a picture when our faith becomes sight. And Jesus says those who are in the afterlife in heaven are like angels in heaven. Now some folks use this to say that when we die we become angels. That's not what Jesus said. He says that those in the afterlife are like angels in heaven. And that means that the angels aren't married. And those who are in heaven who have been resurrected become like them in that way. So yeah, don't read too much into that. You're like the angels of heaven. You don't become an angel. So Jesus gives some insight into the heavenly realm that hasn't been revealed before about marriage and the lack of it in the, in the sweet by and by, in the hereafter. But he's not done with this resurrection discussion yet. Look at verses 31 and 32 for his clarifying statement on life after death. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead. But of the living. Man, that's a fantastic statement. So the Sadducees had come trying to trick Jesus into saying something that might get him in trouble with someone regarding the resurrection. Well, Jesus draws the clear lines here instead. He's already said there is a resurrection and that humans don't marry there. Now he says this And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? So Jesus is going to address this resurrection thought pattern now. How? Like he has addressed so many issues before, he's going to address it with the word of God. So he asks the Sadducees the same question that he has sarcastically asked the Pharisees before. Have you not read? And he adds here to that question, this statement, what was said to you by God? So again, remember, these Sadducees would have been experts in and enforcers of the law of God, specifically from the first five books. Of the Bible. So for Jesus to ask them, Have you not read what was said to you by God? That was a blatant insult. That is dripping with sarcasm. Have you not read? There's a book. It's called, Maybe not read? And what does Jesus quote in his word that God said? He quotes the Pentateuch in a reference to the fathers of the Jewish race. He says that God says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob and to add insult to injury, that's a quote from Exodus 3.6 where God is talking to who? Moses. It's when God was revealing himself to Moses at the burning bush. Now remember how the Sadducees seated their question. Moses said, if a brother dies, his brother should raise up seed for him. Okay, so Jesus says that God was speaking to Moses in Exodus the very heart of your Pentateuch, when he said this thing that he's saying, that I'm bringing up to you. God revealing himself to Moses at the burning bush. So Jesus references the Pentateuch, which the Sadducees would have valued, talking about an incident involving Moses, whom they would have treasured and loved and quoted and and, and considered as authoritative, and mentioning the prime ancestors of the Jewish race, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus really covered all the bases there. 
Jesus just used their authorities and their ancestors to show them that the God that they don't know about does indeed raise people to life after their death. Because, he says, God says that he is the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, who at Moses' time had long since died when God was speaking to Moses there in that passage in Exodus. So, Jesus says, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So in saying that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God is saying that those three long-deceased men were indeed, when God was speaking to Moses, alive. And so, Jesus says, yes, there is life after death. There is resurrection. God said it. He put it in even your little sliver of Bible that you read. And the hero of your faith just affirmed it. As did your ancestors. I mean, he really just shellacked them there. But since these Sadducees did not know the word nor the power of God, well, it just didn't matter at all. We don't have a reaction from the Sadducees here. But we do have a reaction from the crowd looking on in verse 33. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Again, as is so often the case, the crowds are not just impressed with Jesus and his teaching, but it says that they were astonished at his teaching. They see all the I's that he dotted and all the T's that he crossed and the precise way in which he silenced every argument that they would try to put against him. They would say, Moses never said that. Jesus said, God said to Moses that very thing. Well, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, yeah, they're alive. He would say in the book of John, before Abraham was, I am. So he just, he just, he just leveled. And, and, it, and it so impressed the crowds. That word, they, they were astonished means that they were utterly amazed at the words and the power. That keeps coming up, right? Words and power. They were utterly amazed at the words and power evident in Jesus. And those words and that power were the very words and the very power of God Himself. As He stood there in their midst. And the crowds were astonished at His teaching. So as we move to application, what's the question? What about us? Are you astonished at Jesus' teaching? You know, it's so funny because Dave Mellick was supposed to read the opening scripture this morning. And that got transferred to Don, who read what David had put in the presentation, which was about what? A resurrection. Will shared this table portion. And what was it about? It was about resurrection. What were most of the songs about this morning? Resurrection. You're like, what is it? Resurrection Sunday? Every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. Are we astonished at the Word and the power of God? Are we astonished at the truth of resurrection because we should be and so our application points are not alliterated but they are the word of God the power of God and the resurrection that's our application points the word of God the power of God and resurrection so first application point is the word of God And you're like, oh, this is another one of those Bible application points, isn't it? Yes, yes it is. Absolutely it is. And there's several things in this passage that I want to apply to our lives, want us to apply to our lives regarding what we've read today. First thing I want you to talk about the Word of God, you don't get to pick and choose what you believe in the Word of God. Well, I'll take the Pentateuch, but I'm not going to deal with Revelation any. I'll take the New Testament, but the God of the Old Testament, I don't like Him. So we're not going to spend any time in the Old Testament. It doesn't apply to us anymore. Or more accurately, people would say it doesn't apply to me anymore. Well, guess what? You don't get to choose that. And I would look at liberal Christianity in the face and say, you don't get to choose that. 
The Word of God is the Word of God. And you don't get to pick and choose from it. It is not a buffet. The buffets are closed, right? The golden crowd people say, Amen. Yes, they are. You don't get to pick and choose. Rich Mullins had a song called It Don't Do. It don't do to preach on Matthew if you have not yet read Mark. It don't do. It's all interconnected, all 66 books. And if you want a faith-challenging and faith-strengthening study, go and study how the Bible came to be, how we got these 66 books. It will challenge your faith and it will strengthen your faith. It'll have you wondering how in the world did God bring this thing about? And did He really? And you may teeter on the edge there for a little bit. And when you slide over the hill and see that He did, it does nothing but strengthen your faith. So if we've got these 66 books that make up this one book, what are we supposed to do with it? If all of it's relevant, if all of it matters, for goodness sake, the Bible is our primary means of knowing God. What are you doing with it? What am I doing with it? We should read it. We should study it. We should memorize it. We should meditate on it. We should speak it. We should sing it. We should live it. John MacArthur, in a quote, not from this message that he did on this passage, but he said, The only way you can be saturated with the thoughts of Christ is to saturate yourself with the book that is all about Him. 1 Timothy 4, 15-16, Paul says this to Timothy, his young disciple, whom he's charging to lead God's people. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. The application point here is immerse yourself in the Word of God. Surround yourself with it. And, and listen, I'm all about apps and I'm all about ease of reading and study and listening. I think those things are great. And I'm not saying forsake those things. But if my personal devotional time is 10 minutes of listening to the Bible in the morning, guys, it's not enough. I have to immerse myself in the Scriptures. We're Baptists, right? We're all about immersion. Immerse yourself in the Bible. Lower yourself down into it. Be saturated, soaked by it all the time. We should have such an insatiable appetite for the Bible that we just can't get enough. Why? Because it's the Word of God. And it is our primary means of knowing God. Anybody want to know God? Yeah, that'd be nice if I knew God. Do you want to know God? The primary way that you're going to know God is through the Scriptures. So immerse yourself in them. Hebrews 4.12 For the Word of God is living and active. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You know when the Bible really comes alive? When it's in your life. And you start living it out. Now you're like, well the Bible is living and active apart from me. That is true. But let me ask you this question. What does your life say about the Bible? Do people know anything about the Bible from your life? Is the Bible being lived out through your life? If you don't know it, I promise you it's not. What kind of Bible does your life show? A boring book? That's irrelevant and doesn't matter in our everyday affairs as we go out to live our lives? Is that what kind of Bible your life shows? Is that what kind of Bible my life shows? Oh, that's just a bunch of Bible thumpers. God, may it be. 
may it be, may I be found guilty of being a Bible thumper, carrier, quoter. All you ever do is quote the Bible. Praise God. Because it's the Word of God that's living and active. So immerse yourself in it. Live it out. So that's the Word of God. Second application point, the power of God. Now listen, it's very easy to say, and it rolls off the tongue, super easy for us, God is omnipotent. Right? Omnipotent means all-powerful. God is all-powerful. So let me ask you this question. How powerful does your life make God look? Do people see God as powerful through your life? These Sadducees marched up to Jesus and they throw him some mamby-pamby scenario about seven husbands and one wife and this is going to prove there's no resurrection. And Jesus said, you're wrong because you don't know the Scriptures and you don't know the power of God. And I wonder what the world sees when they look at us. Do they see a powerful God? Or do they see a bunch of people biting their nails because they're worried about what's going to happen? Or they see us hunkered over our sin trying to hide it from everybody. How powerful does your life make God? Look, listen to me. Please hear me. So many times in Jesus' life, it was the power of God on display through miracles, signs, wonders that made people understand that He was from God. Now listen, we are not Jesus. Our ministry is not the same as Jesus. God hasn't called us to do what Jesus did necessarily. But the same Holy Spirit that was in Jesus is in us. Not part of Him. Not someone like the Holy Spirit that was in Jesus. The very same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is in us. Does your life make that manifest to the world? To other believers? How powerful is your God? Where is the God of Elijah? Where is the God of Moses? Where is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? Where is the God of Simon, Peter and Martha? He's right here. He's right here. How do I know that? Acts 1.8 <laughs> But you, Jesus said to his apostles... You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. You say, well, that was for the apostles. Well, those words were specifically to the apostles. But guess what, church? The same Holy Spirit that fell on them is the same Holy Spirit that fell on the jailer in Philippi and the same Holy Spirit that fell on the disciples of John at Ephesus later in the book of Acts. It's the same Holy Spirit that came upon me when I was born again. And and what's he come for? For power! Power for what? And you will be my witnesses. The literal word is martyrs. You will lay your life down to tell people the story about who Jesus is and how awesome and incredible and powerful that God is. When the Holy Spirit comes, you will become witnesses. I'll ask you again, how powerful does the world see your God through your witness? Your verbal witness, your life witness, your gospel witness. Because that's what the power of God exists for in our lives today. Is to preach the gospel, the gospel which is the very power of God unto salvation for those who will believe. For the Jew first and also for the Greek. Romans 1.17 
How powerful is your God in your gospel presentation? Watch this. It's not just for gospel presentation, though. 1 Thessalonians 1. I'm going to read verses 3 through 8, then pull something out of here about power. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. Now, could anybody write that about your life? You received the word with much affliction... And you grew to the point that we don't have to say anything about your faith because we see it. And so does all of Macedonia and all of Achaia, all of Beckley, all of Raleigh County. They see your faith because it's powerful. Is there anything that separates us from the world in our everyday lives more than the power of God. Let me ask this before we move to the last point. We have relegated the power of God to an emotion. I don't feel the power of God in my life. Does that matter? Oh, it matters. But it's not the ultimate determinant. The truth is the power of God is in our lives because the very Holy Spirit of God is in our lives. You know what chokes out that Holy Spirit? Sin. Well, I don't really feel that convicted about my sin. I don't care. Confess. Repent. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Grieve not the Spirit. Quench not the Spirit of God. How do we do that? By sinning. Sin robs you of the power of God. And you know what? That's not just for your benefit. That power of God is not just for your benefit. It's for our benefit. It's for the world's benefit. So if you don't feel like the power of God is flowing in you, well, that's a good indicator you need to do something, but that doesn't mean He's not there. Because the power of God is the Holy Spirit who lives in us and He convicts us of our sin and we bring our sin to God and God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness so that we can go out and show the power of God in our everyday lives. The very power of God in our everyday lives. Do you know the power of God? And are you showing the power of God? How powerful does your life make God look? Finally, last application point is resurrection. The Word of God, the power of God, and resurrection. Herb Hodges said this, There is no such thing as final death in the Bible. Nobody will cease to be. Think about that a second. That means that after we die, we're still alive. That's pretty good news, isn't it? For the believer, it's great news. Fantastic news. Arlene, your daddy ain't dead. That's good news. We have a hope, a real hope, of the resurrection from the dead, of life after death. This is not all there is. I wish I could count how many people have sat on my therapy couch and talked about the hopelessness they have because they don't see any point in any of it. Which means that when I die, the worms are just going to eat me and nothing's going to matter anymore at all anyway. Oh man. We have a hope to hold out to the world. This life is not all there is. Don read 1 Corinthians 15. You want to talk about the hope of resurrection, read 1 Corinthians 15. We're not going to do that as we finish this application point. Watch this, Romans 1, 1 through 4. 
Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. You want to see the power of God? Look at the resurrection of Christ. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection. God said, approved. I approve of your work. Come out of the grave. And the earth shook. And that little rock they put, well, it was a big rock to us, a little rock to God. But bing, it flew away. It was gone. Jesus came out of the tomb. And people saw a dead man who was alive again. And not just alive, but glorified. He was in a perfect body. Now watch this. Is your life marked by resurrection power? Colossians 2, 8 through 15. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in Him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. And He did that in and for you. He raised you to life with the same power that He raised Jesus to life. And the same Holy Spirit that was in Christ is now in you because of the power of the resurrection. It's one thing to live a Christian life. I think it's another thing to live a resurrection life. It's not about rules of do's and don'ts and cans and can'ts. It's about ultimate freedom, ultimate power, the ultimate fulfillment of everything that the Scriptures promise us. What kind of Bible does your life show? What kind of power does your life show? Does your life show the resurrection of Christ on full display? Because it can. Don't walk out of here today with your head hung low and say, Well, it don't. I'm a jerk. No! If it don't, it can. God took away your sins. You are a sinner. And in His grace, God took away your sins, nailed them to the cross, buried you with Christ, raised you up with Him in the same power that brought Jesus out of that grave, put His Holy Spirit in you, and now you can walk in the same resurrection power that Jesus walked in that first day He came out of the tomb and that He still abides in today, seated at the right hand of God, everything firmly in His control as He holds everything together through this resurrection power. That power is available to me and to you today. And that is good news. Do I even know God? Does the world know God through me? Because I understand the Word of God. I understand the power of God. And I understand that because of the resurrection, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Because of that, the same power that was in Him is in me now. And the Word of God tells me that. And the power of God can be on full display in your life and my life. If we will put our faith in the finished work of Christ. If we will trust in Him, who He is and what He's done. What He has said. Put down our deadly doings. Confess our sins. Repent of our sins. Run to Jesus. Where He lifts our head. Calls us beloved. And puts His Holy Spirit in us.
If you're not a Christian this morning, you can be. Put your faith in the finished work of Christ. If you're a Christian this morning and you feel beat down, you don't have to be. You are a child of the King. You are a child of the omnipotent God who has placed His omnipotent Holy Spirit in you to rise above this muck and mire and deceit and trash and despair that's in our world today. How powerful does your life make the Word of God? How powerful does your life make the God of the Word look? Do you even know Him? I hope you do. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your faithfulness, your goodness, your perfect plan, which includes us being filled with your Holy Spirit, confessing our sins, repenting of our sins, forsaking our sins, so that your power can be manifest and shown through us for your glory, for our good, and for the good of those who are all around us. Help us to live in the power that you have given us through the resurrection of Christ. Help us to see it in your word and may it be on full display in our lives so that we would know and so that others would know. Help us, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. You are dismissed. If you want to congregate, I don't think it's raining. Do it outside. We love you better out there than we will in.